Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Paul Palango, author, veteran, investigative journalist, and uh, glass artist. How you doing? I'm doing fine, Jesse. Nice to hear from you again. Today on the show, reality omission at the Mass Casualty Commission. Will we ever know what really happened at Port-a-Pic? Also, Pope tropes. Are indigenous delegates kissing and making up with the Catholic Church? Because that is the story that I'm getting from the Vatican News. Other journalists, uh, indigenous journalists, aren't even being allowed in. Paul, welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Glad to be here, Jesse. This episode is brought to everyone by Jennifer Young, Aidan Albert, Crystal Henry, Joanna Wojcik, Benno Kress, Laura Sauter, Charlene Huddy, and James. My name is James. I work in e-commerce and live in Ottawa. I support Canada Land because they bring attention to underreported issues, past and present. The comments episode, Life and Death in Asbestos, Quebec, was eye-opening. The shed a light on a moment in history I didn't learn about in school, where our curriculum felt like one long Canadian Heritage Moment commercial. If you haven't checked it out yet, the Backbench Podcast is a recent favorite of mine. Their panelists give a fresh perspective on all things Canadian politics. 
For the first time, we've heard directly from three RCMP members who responded to fires and shootings in Portapique on the night of April 18th, 2020. The failure to contain the gunman and the lack of an emergency alert are expected to come up at a later date when senior RCMP managers, including Commissioner Brenda Lucky, are called to testify. Paul, I think most people in Canada generally feel like it's a good thing that we don't have CNN here, that we don't have like that kind of round the clock cable news coverage where they hop on a big story sometimes and they just sort of make a meal. And often it's a very unseemly thing for ratings where they're they're just like round the clock on one thing. But there are occasions where I kind of feel like we would be better served and we would know more about really important stuff if we did have that kind of scrutiny. And I am speaking here specifically about what is unfolding in Nova Scotia right now, the worst mass killing in Canadian history, an incident where there are so many unanswered questions and so much reason to be skeptical of what authorities have been telling us. You've been on this story. In fact, you've sort of been like seized back into journalism out of your retirement as a glass artist and have been leading the charge with reports that I think have taken certain lines of inquiry from the space of like uh, what was considered conspiracy theory to seeping into mainstream media coverage as the facts bear out. People are learning that the questions you've been asking and the revelations that you've been reporting have merit. Finally, we are at this point of this public inquest where we're supposed to get to the bottom of it and I don't know, like the coverage, first of all, it looks a little buried. It doesn't seem like there's a tremendous amount of heat or pressure. It doesn't seem like the nation is like, we need to know. Maybe we can start by painting a picture of what is this inquest and what about this inquest should journalists be asking questions about before we even get to the substance of the inquest itself? Well, from the outset, Jesse, in the days after the massacres in April 18th and 19th, 2020, in his first uh, comments on this, first or second comments, Prime Minister Trudeau said, uh, we should not name this individual who killed these 22 people and glorify their infamy. And in a typical Canadian fashion, everyone listened to the government, listened to the prime minister, especially the media. And within days, they stopped reporting on the story, maybe a few weeks And then, you know, eventually we end up with this inquiry two years down the road. And then the inquiry is saddled with uh, this directive from the uh, from the original order and council that created it, saying that, uh, you know, things must be trauma informed. That means we can't upset anyone. Restorative justice principles must be used. So there's no conflict. We're going to resolve this, resolve 22 murders, basically. And the process would not be adversarial. So we weren't going to find out, uh, have any lawyers asking hard questions. And then they appointed people to run the commission who uh, didn't believe in, uh, you know, Kim Stanton, for example, uh, wrote a book where she basically says uh, the public inquiries are not there to investigate but to be used as tools of social engineering to accomplish political goals, essentially. So I... 
don't want to leave this idea that restorative justice and trauma-informed processes are just somehow uh, bullshit because I think that they come from a place that is trying to be legitimately mindful and, and careful about survivors of things like this. But in this particular case, I do take your point because the survivors are saying through their lawyers that they are not okay with this process. And to be specific here, how is this inquiry maybe not ideal? Well, first of all, the original idea was for this not even to be a public inquiry, but for this to be like a private procedure. That got rejected. So there is a public inquiry, but it's different than public inquiries that anyone's really ever known. Uh, For example, lawyers have to ask permission before they can cross-examine the witnesses. This is a very unusual rule for public inquiries. I saw these photographs of the three RCMP officers who were most involved the night of this awful event. And they're all kind of like on the stand at the same time. They look like they're being like interviewed on a panel TV show. I don't know. I always thought that you separate witnesses so you can get each of their narratives and see if they match each other. You don't let them kind of like figure out their story. Like that's a very strange setup. The partner of the murderer, Lisa Banfield, I know from your previous reporting and our coverage of it and of the story in general, Commons did a fantastic episode on on Portapic. One of the big outstanding mysteries of this is what exactly happened with her the night of this, because a lot of what she has said just does not pass the smell test. And a lot of people directly involved just were disbelieving and scrutiny of her account, I think was one of the main things that we need to know more about. But she's not testifying. She has pre-recorded, as I understand it, her narrative so that she can't incriminate herself because she's still facing charges. Do I have that right? She has pre-recorded things. In fact, there's a video. They made a video for her. I'm reporting on that in a piece in Frank Magazine Thursday. And there are just enormous number of questions. As for the charges, no, they laid the charges. They hid behind those charges for more than a year after Langham, and they were penny ante charges of uh, supplying ammunition or transferring ammunition without a permit, which is like a traffic ticket. And then a couple of weeks ago, they said, oh, no, now she's going into restorative justice, and those charges are gone away. She won't have a criminal charge. She's going to testify. But I don't think she really is going to testify. It's just going to be this movie and uh, setting out what she did, but not answering any of the tough questions about her that raise us that are raised the skepticism about her original story. And then Jesse, you have to look back at this whole notion of, you know, yes, I support the restorative justice theme, but restorative justice has been banned for murder cases and for things involving murder. Mm-hmm. But they're still relying on this to tell the story because they say we want to be trauma informed. We don't want to inflict any more trauma on the families, but the families are telling me the ones that will talk to me say it The trauma was having our loved one killed. Now they're aggravating this trauma by not getting to the bottom of what happened. And finally, the big conflict here is that from the beginning, the police and the government and their supporters have tried to make this look like it was a domestic violence case gone wrong. And uh, the scourge of domestic violence must be dealt with in this inquiry. Yes, domestic violence is a problem, but... The real issue here of the public inquiry is what the RCMP did before, during, and after the massacres, because there's two different massacres. 13 people are killed in the first one on a Saturday night. 
The next morning, Wortman kills nine people. At no point does he ever stop. There's no roadblock put up. The RCMP is completely at a loss for more than three hours. And eventually, uh, they accidentally run into him and kill him. At the end of that, two public reports come out from the police watchdog. And I was able to show that uh, both those reports were not only just flawed, they're outright lies in that report about what happened, because I had videotape and audio tape showing what really happened. We're not going to be able, in, in this space, you've been talking about this on podcasts, you've got a book coming out, there's a lot here, but um, to jog people's memories so they have a bit of a better idea of just exactly what we're so curious about and what remains unanswered, tell me if this is like the list of questions or maybe the, you know, the first list of, of top-level questions. Why did this go on so long? Why did it take so long for him to be found? That's a big question. Why this was a, a two-day massacre, why he wasn't stopped the night of. Why did the RCMP not issue an emergency public alert that went to everyone's phone? Instead, they put out a tweet. Why did they not warn people in every way they could to be on, on the lookout for a killer in an RCMP police car? That would have saved lives, potentially. Why did the police leave kids, four children, hiding in a basement for hours and hours? There was a shootout at a fire hall, I guess in error because the killer wasn't there. What was that about? Why were the cops opening fire? Here's a big one. What was Gabriel Wartman's relationship with law enforcement prior to this massacre? What were the real circumstances of his death? Was he basically executed by a cop? Did the cop have to shoot him? Was it possible to take him alive, in which case we might know a lot more right now about his past with the police if he was taken alive? And I guess, did the RCMP do everything they could have to stop Wartman while he was on this rampage? Did they do everything they could have to protect the people of Nova Scotia? Now, Paul... I am always more inclined to feel like even cover-ups happen not because of conspiracies to do with complicated plots about police informants, but just because incompetence. I'm always more willing to ascribe to incompetence than to malice or than to some grand design. Obviously, this did not go the way the RCMP wanted it to go, and perhaps the lies that, that you say you, you've uncovered and the unanswered questions and the lack of transparency in this process is just because the RCMP, like, you know, heads are going to roll or should roll and they have a lot to answer for or, or hide and about just how poor a job they did. How certain are you that it's more than that, that they have more to hide than just being incompetent? There's something else there. I've had sources from the beginning telling me that when you find out what really was going on here, it's worse than the 22 people being murdered, which I find hard to believe. That's a big statement, Paul. Yeah, but it's sort of driven me all along. You know, I, I was told they're destroying evidence early on. I found the documents showing that they were destroying evidence. You know, in, in October 2020, a moratorium on the destruction of the evidence in the case of Gabriel Wortman. What are they doing destroying evidence? We still don't know what they were destroying. The RCMP tried to intercede with senior people, the husbands of the operating officers in Nova Scotia, tried to intercede between the police force and the commission. We found, as I said, the tapes and the video showing that Wortman appeared to be executed. No attempt was made to arrest him. So you ask yourself, is this incompetence or is there something else going on? You can make both arguments. The problem is that this is sort of the uh, the latest 
outrage and a long history of outrages by the RCMP. Not to advocate for the RCMP, but if indeed the theory that they were working with Wortman as some sort of a confidential source and there's some greater aspect to this, not even to justify that if it is the case, but I guess when RCMP are working with undercover sources, in fact, I know this from your reporting, they actually are allowed, I mean, you, you know, undercover means deception and means secrets. And they actually have instructions and authority to lie. If asked, was this guy working with you or was somebody else connected to him working with you? They're allowed to lie, right? They're allowed to lie unless asked by a judge. So doesn't this inquest finally give us the ability for like a legal procedure where they can't lie? No, it doesn't. In fact, that's one of the curiosities that since this is an issue, you think they'd bring a judge in to do the job, but they brought in the former chief justice of Nova Scotia, Mr. McDonald, and guess what? The important word here is former. He's not a judge sitting in the capacity of a judge, and by the RCMP rules and the, you know, the government of Canada rules, the RCMP does not have to tell him the truth about any kind of operation like that. This is the judge, incidentally, perhaps, who... Uh I understand, exonerated the former premier of Nova Scotia, Gerald Regan, on a lifetime of sexual assault charges, which there's also an episode of Commons about. Oh, absolutely. People in Nova Scotia remember that. They were outraged by Regan and the egregious assaults against women and young girls. There are journalists who are at this inquest diligently doing their jobs as best they can now, at the end of a process where things have been set up in such a way that certain information comes forward and certain questions can be asked, what's the reporter to do? They don't get to ask questions there. They report on what's getting said. That needs to happen. Tim Bousquet and others are doing that work. There's another thing that the, the media can do, which perhaps we don't do enough in Canada, which is we can use our soapboxes to express outrage and demand better processes and that has not happened in this case. Maybe people will point out some exceptions to me, but for an incident of this magnitude, for a tragedy, for a massacre like this, it's absurd. The mysteries that this is going to leave, I guess I just don't feel a lot of confidence that that long list of questions that I posed earlier, we're going to actually have clarity on. And unless you've got some real revelations up your sleeve in your book, uh, you know, to write a book at this juncture with so many things unanswered to me, Paul, seems like maybe you might also feel like some of this is going to remain in the dark. That vacuum, I can't imagine what that does to those grieving. That mystery gets filled up with anger, suspicion, paranoia. It makes closure impossible. You know, the whole point of the book, I said, well, you know, I've written three books on the RCMP. I have a pretty good understanding of how they operate and I'll help other journalists. But I soon realized they were just falling away from the story, losing interest. There was no editorials being written. There was no columnist, not in uh, Nova Scotia or anywhere else, picking up the story, except for Enzo DiBatteo in the uh, Now magazine of all places in Toronto, who occasionally wrote about it. So I decided that I could see what was going on. I could see that they were trying to cover things up. And I felt that I had to put as much as possible on the record so that it landed around the time that I thought the commission would be sitting. Is it the complete story? Hell no. We don't know the complete story, but I'm filling in a lot and raising a lot of questions 
that need to be addressed. And meanwhile, you know, maybe I'll have to write a second book to complete the thought. Competing narratives, Paul. You know, the inquest is going to have whatever narrative it has. You have a narrative that uh, hopefully through reporting and substantiation, you know, puts uh, some kind of a check on that. And other media, you know, Global News had a podcast 13 hours uh, trying to really dive in deep and, and tell the whole story. I know from you that when one of the witnesses, Leon Jodry, told Global News that he did not believe Lisa Banfield's story. She spent the night out in the woods, she said, and then walked in looking like without a, a smudge on her clothes. A lot of things didn't add up to this witness. And a global producer cut that, cut that from the podcast and actually said in writing that they cut it because the witness's comments were different than the police version of events. And that's the story in a nutshell that we have a media that is very, very sick in Canada, that it, it has come to the point where there's very little initiative taken, no real investigative reporting. You know, what is, investigative reporting is challenging the official narrative. And what we have now in Canada is that, by and large, right across the board at every level, all they want to do is accept the official version, as if we're in Russia, for Christ's sake. You saw with the Lisa Banfield story, that she came out, she spent all night in the woods, no shoes, no socks. It was zero degrees. She survives with her fingers and toes. And they keep repeating this story over and over and over again. Every time the police put out a new version of the story, Greg Mercer from the Globe and Mail, for example, jumps on it and it's a front page story. The most compelling thing to me was this moment where she knocks on the door of a neighbor after supposedly spending the night barefoot in the woods, zero degrees. And to those neighbors, she just walks in kind of fresh as a daisy and their impression, and they live there and they know what those nights are like. They said, this isn't right. She's not telling the truth. Well, not only that, Jesse, what she did when she came to the door, according to Leon Jodry, is he said, it's 634 in the morning. And he goes, what are you doing here, Lisa? Gabriel doesn't like me. She says, oh, she turns and goes to leave. Well, excuse me. She's supposedly been in the woods for eight and a half hours. Her common-law husband's killed all these people, set the neighborhood on fire, and she says, oh, she's being polite. She's not desperate to be rescued. And there are other examples of that in her story that just make it not believable, you know, not credible. And she should be cross-examined, and they're doing everything they can not to cross-examine her, which raises questions about what is her relationship to the police? Why are they protecting her? This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. 
Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Okay, Paul, on this show, we like to duly note stories that deserve more attention than they've gotten. Is there something that you have to tell our listeners about? Well, I am interested in what's going on at the Vatican and with the, uh, you know, the issue about Aboriginal art and, and things like that, because, you know, it's important to look at all the workings of the Catholic Church, just like the RCMP. There's a lot of similarities. So I do have a sort of an interest in both of them. Well, you're on the right show because we're going to talk about that in our segment coming up. So duly noted. I want to duly note something that uh, is not a story that's gone under noticed. And that's the slap. Paul, you know which slap I'm talking about. Who doesn't know about the slap? Everyone's talked about the slap, but what the world needs, I really thought about this long and hard. And I thought, you know what the world needs is um, my take on this. And so here we go. I don't know. I guess what I, (laughs) I had this moment after the initial shock of it happening where I felt so alienated, where you think that you have common ground with people, at least on some essential level. And then you watch as logic just gets warped. And I'm not saying that everybody felt this way, but I did see a line of reasoning that scared me to my bones. And it kind of went like this, Paul, like a a lot of people tweeting and, and saying like, Guys, this wasn't funny, okay? The shaved head wasn't Jada's, like, fashion statement. She has alopecia. It's an autoimmune disease. Okay, I didn't know that. That's interesting. And then people picked up on that and said, well, okay, she has this disease. I mean, basically, she's disabled. Chris Rock was mocking a disabled person. I don't know about that, but it kept going. Guys... Don't minimize this as like, this is just a joke, like some harmless thing. Don't gaslight because as we know, words can be violence. Words can be a form of violence. So really, this was an act of violence. In fact, this was ableist violence against a disabled person. And then that became, everyone, please do your research, okay? Because alopecia is not just a disease or or perhaps a disability. It has a specific context with regards to black women. So really, you could see this as an act of racist, ableist violence against a disabled black woman. Once you get there, Paul, like the slap doesn't seem like it's bad enough. Like we let lock them up. I didn't hear anyone saying that Chris Rock should be locked up. But I did read people genuinely arguing that Chris Rock's joke was worse and a more violent act than the assault that we all saw, that it was worse than a physical assault. And 
if I sound like I'm up on my high horse about this, like I'm going to make some case about the sanctity of words and how violence can never be the proper response to free speech, there's nothing idealistic about what I'm saying. Like I am purely self-interested here because if it's okay to assault Chris Rock, like Chris Rock, brilliant, likable, handsome, famous Chris Rock, if it's okay to beat down a guy like that for saying something as tame as what he said at the Oscars, then Paul, I'm done. Like I am way less likable than Chris Rock. I'm nowhere near as smart or funny or famous. And I say worse stuff than that dumb joke all the time. So if everyone's cool with him catching a beating, then I am going to get the snot smacked out of me on a regular basis. Duly noted. After facing delays, members of an indigenous delegation had their first round of talks with Pope Francis at the Vatican Monday. Survivors of residential schools and their supporters have waited a long time for this historic summit. After decades of harm, First Nations, Inuit and Métis people are again looking to the Roman Catholic Church to make amends. So, Paul, I want to talk about what you brought up earlier, this delegation of uh, indigenous people who have traveled to Rome, to the Vatican, to meet with the Pope for this historic meeting. And I'm reading about it in the press, and I read in the Globe and Mail that Pope Francis was considered so kind by members of one indigenous delegation. Quote, his smile and his reaction, his body language, I just felt, I just love this man said one elder to the Globe and Mail. And then I read about it through the Vatican News. They seem to have coverage that no one else has. And according to the Vatican News, these meetings were considered beautiful by the president of the Canadian Bishops Conference, a bishop from Canada, considered these meetings beautiful. That's the voice that was um, primary in one of these stories, and I read in the Vatican News that both delegations were profoundly appreciative of the Pope's warm welcome and his close, attentive listening to their stories, hopes, and aspirations. That is the story that I'm getting from those sources. But I'm also following other people, Tanya Talaga on Twitter. Paul, don't take this the wrong way. I'm very happy to have you on the show today. We originally had booked Brandy Morin, who is an indigenous journalist who is there covering this from the Vatican, and I hope to have her on the show still, but um, we had to make other plans when she became unavailable, and what she tells us is that this is an extremely difficult event to cover. There are a ton of barriers, and it is emotionally devastating. The Vatican is controlling everything that the media has access to. And it's very sparse. I am very offended by that. It's not right, it's not transparent. This is not how you go about reconciliation. The media plays such a huge role in this process. I think the stakes of this are very different for both the indigenous delegates and indigenous journalists covering it than perhaps they are for the Pope and for the Vatican News and for everybody else at the Vatican. 
I also know from Brandy's feed that this is being a tightly stage-managed and controlled series of press events where the Vatican News is being given access that other journalists, indigenous journalists, are not being given the same access to tell the story from their perspective. I know that Tanya Talaga was thrown out of a Vatican museum in which artifacts that the Catholic Church has somehow acquired from various indigenous peoples are on display. And Tanya took pictures. Tanya Telega of the Globe Mail took pictures and was thrown out of the museum for doing so. Of course, there's a conversation about how the Catholic Church came into possession of these things and whether they get to keep them or whether this is stolen material. And I think we're going to hear, as we get more reporting from Brandy and Tanya and others, more about the other side of this. But I guess what's coming through loud and clear is that the Vatican is controlling the narrative of this historic event, of which the intent, as I understand it, is to address a false narrative of what happened in the first place. That's right. Well, welcome to my world, Jesse. I cover the RCMP. As I said before, there are great similarities between the Catholic Church and the RCMP controlling narratives. So I understand the story. It's really disturbing. Brandy tweeted, not happy with the Vatican and its high level of control of media in the process of meeting with indigenous delegates regarding residential schools. They're staging this to be in their favor for the world to see. This is not reconciliation. The whole thing to me feels really fraught. You know, there's kind of like a home court advantage for the Pope, the fact that he did not come to Canada, the fact that indigenous delegates had to go there seeking an apology, which perhaps as listeners today are following this, maybe we'll find out if there's actually an apology, which apparently has not happened yet. But the idea of like going to his home turf where he's got his artifacts of your peoples to like ask him for an apology. And even so... There is this history of performative reconciliation. The Catholic Church, you know, it's one thing to say you're going to pay people or say you're sorry. The follow-through seems to rarely be there. And I just, my heart really goes to people who are like seeking, I think, in the most compassionate good faith possible, some kind of reconciliation with somebody who represents an institution which was flatly murderous, homicidal, uh, genocidal, and trying to get somewhere with that, but knowing that if history is any indication, there won't even be truth, let alone reconciliation. Like a lot of Canadians, when I first heard it, they wanted an apology and reclaim some of the uh, artifacts and bring them home. And I thought, oh, why would you do that? They're in a museum. And then my wife, Sharon, she reminded us of the trip that we took to the Vatican Museum a couple of years ago. We were in there. And she said she looked at it, and at the time, looking at all the fabulous tapestries and and whatever else they have there, I mean, it's probably the greatest museum. And uh, she said, why don't they just give it all back? (laughs) Or why don't they sell it off and pay for all the damage they've incurred? I thought, yeah, that's sort of right. You know, like the Catholic Church has managed to grab all kinds of things around the world and build this sort of economic financial fortress that is now crumbling bit by bit. And then public relations now has become a big thing to them because they're, you know, they're getting boxed in everywhere. Yeah, you know, I, this this all happened because of the discovery of the unmarked graves and um, the Vatican news coverage. It isn't even like headline coverage. This is like, this is like a small story from their perspective. 
And there's no real special regard or sensitivity being given to the indigenous journalists that are there. Like they're, they're on Vatican turf and they're, they're being you know thrown out of buildings on Vatican authority. You might be done with the past, but the past ain't done with you. The efforts to discover and reclaim these grave sites continues. And I think that if the Catholic Church feels like a performative meeting will be enough to kind of like nip this one in the bud, I kind of feel like they got another thing coming. Absolutely. I mean, it's not over. I mean, nothing is over for the Catholic Church because of, you know, the egregious behavior over, you know, the the centuries and, uh, you know, in this new age and uh, in, in this day and age, people are a little smarter. You know, they, more and more people don't believe in the invisible man in the sky. So their charade is becoming more and more apparent to, to those people and others. Yeah. And the check's coming due. Yep. Paul, that is Shortcuts for this week. I really want to thank you for joining me for it. Oh, anytime, Jesse. I'm always here. Otherwise, I'm just being a glass artist. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. Paul, what is the name of your book? It's 22 Murders, an Investigation into the Massacres, Cover-Up, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia. I think it's important that people read this book. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do across this network, if you value it the way we do it, and give you ad-free podcasts and t-shirts and other things is uh, because people go to canadaland.com slash join and sign up or click the link in the show notes. It really takes like two minutes. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you.